Well, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're beginning a new series. We're going to pause our series in John, come back to it at, at another time, and pick up there again. Um, and uh, between now and as we approach Easter, um, until we get closer to Easter anyway, we're going to be in a series that I'm titling The Church, A Spiritual Community. Now, it's our usual practice to work through books or portions of books of the Bible. However, uh, this new series leading up to Easter, it's going to be oriented around a subject, the church, um, and the reality that the church is, is a spiritual community. Not, not just speaking about the church, but the church and what every local church is. In other words, not just this church but what the church and what every local church is and the church down the street that believes in Jesus and maybe the one you were at you know, last year that believes in Christ. Who is the church? I'm going to strive to be equally biblical in this series, not less biblical just because we're not working through a book, uh, but we will look at a lot of Scripture and focus on applying all the wonderful truths that we regularly learn on Sundays. And we did this a couple years ago in a series called The Cross is a Pattern for Living. You may remember that series if you've been around <clears throat> for a length of time. So um, in this series, I intend to address what the church is. The church is a community, not just a community, but it's a spiritual community. And we're going to talk about what it means about who we are, that we are a spiritual community, and how it requires us to live. What does that say about how we live? So if you would, join me in prayer. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Lord, it is indeed good and pleasant when we dwell together in unity. It is, as it were, like the Spirit's presence in our midst. It is like life and refreshing from you. And there you bestow blessing, Lord. We rejoice in that. So I pray that you would use this text to stir our hearts and to enable us to live together in that unity. In Jesus' name, amen. In November of 2012, so about four and a half years ago, <clears throat> Timothy Gray, a homeless man, died frozen to death under a railroad overpass in Evanston, Wyoming, as the temperatures the previous night reached 10 degrees. He was completely unaware that a year and a half earlier, 104-year-old Huguette Clark died with an estate valued at over $300 million, and that he was heir to $19 million of that wealth. In her death, she made him a millionaire a multiple millionaire, but he didn't know it, and, and so it didn't change how he lived or died one bit. Who we are affects what we do, but only if we know who we are and what it means to be who we are. It did him no good to be who he was, a millionaire, because he didn't know it. He had no knowledge of it. 
Who we are affects what we do, but only if we know who we are and what it means to be who we are. It's important that we learn the Bible, and it's vital that we learn who we are we that are learning the Bible, it's important that we understand that who this we that's learning the Bible is, who we are. Because who we are affects what we do with what we learn. What do we do with what we learn? What we do is a function of who we are. In order to change what we do, God changes who we are, fundamentally, at our core. But if we don't know who we are, then we don't live as God intended us to live. Who we are affects what we do, but only if we know who we are and what it means to be who we are. So with that, let's turn our attention to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll begin in verses four, or verse 4, and we're going to work through verse 12, not every single verse in there, but we're going to work through this text, <clears throat> beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When we are joined to Jesus Christ, we are joined to one another. When we're joined to Jesus Christ, we are joined to one another. Living stones, you are living stones, joined to the living stone, Jesus Christ, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. God is saving a people, not a bunch of individuals who remain individuals. Let me say that again. God is saving a people. Not just a bunch of individuals who remain living out their lives as individuals. It's not what he's up to. He's, he's up to saving a people. To be a Christian is to belong to something much bigger than ourselves. To be a Christian is to belong to something much bigger than ourselves. But that also means that we belong to something much bigger than ourselves. We belong to something much bigger than ourselves. Many, many think of worldliness in terms of things we do. So, for instance, if, if someone smokes or listens to a certain type of music or dances or fill in the blank with whatever group, you know, thing that a particular group has decided is worldly, okay, it's worldly if you wear makeup or it's worldly if you, you know, they, they, there are all sorts of things people have identified as worldly so we can put controls on it. But worldliness is much more subtle than that. Worldliness is a way of thinking sown by the enemy of our souls as seeds which sprout, grow roots, and bear thorns and burrs. My two-year-old grandson, Caleb, he, 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 he seems to find burrs in everything. No matter what he's doing, he, burrs seem to get him. They find him. They hook on to him. They stick him. You know, it just seems to be the thing. So everything's now, anything bad is now a burr. Just, you know. <clears throat> In our post Enlightenment age, worldliness is the idea that the truly enlightened person is 
one who owes no obedience to any external authority. It's the aspiration to be free and unattached persons who are subject to no one and master of everything. It's the ideal that requires, in Freudian terms, increasing emancipation from all outside communal authority or social restraint. After all, any form of social restraint is repression. The church in America, by that definition, has become very worldly. People live emancipated lives on their own, unaccountable to anyone, owing nobody anything, free in their own thinking and terms. Some listen to the right music, avoid the wrong, all the wrong places, but think they owe nothing to anyone except Jesus, of course, whom they never actually see in person, and that they're only called to do what they are comfortable with. Nonsense. I was going to use a stronger word, but my wife thought the better of it. <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> <clears throat> the cure... What's the cure for this worldliness that actually has infected the church? The cure is a full awareness and embrace of the fact that we are joined together. Therefore, we belong to one another. We belong to one another. When, when Peter says that we are built into a spiritual house, he has the temple in mind. The temple is called the house of the Lord or uh, so many times in the Old Testament that oftentimes many English translations, when, when translating the word house in reference to the temple, they just translate it the temple. Just, you, you read the English, you just, it's temple, it's temple. But oftentimes house is what's behind that. And that's what Peter has in mind as he's speaking of this house, this spiritual house. It's the temple of the Lord. Paul speaks, is speaking of the same thing when he writes that we are members of God's household which is, and this is in Ephesians 2, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you also, you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Just as God's household, the whole building, is joined together to become the living, or the living holy temple of God. So too, Paul's saying to the Ephesians, you Ephesians, so too you Ephesians, you at Gulf Coast Community Church, so too you at each local church are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. If, if the whole church is the temple of God being built together, then Paul's point here in Ephesians 2 is you also are being built together to be a dwelling of God by the Spirit. You're a localized entity of that temple. You're, that, that temple is no longer in one single place, but each local church is an expression of that being built together dwelling place of God in that community. Do you ever wonder, man, I, I don't know what's going on in my life. I, I don't know what God is doing in my life. Or well, whatever else he may be doing, 
He is building you together with those with whom you worship to become a localized dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. That's what He's doing. <clears throat> and sometimes it, it takes some difficult circumstances to build us together with others because it means death to self. Death to the emancipated self. That we might be joined one to another. We, we are becoming, and this is what God is doing. He's making us and building us together to be a localized temple of God, which is part of the one temple coming down out of heaven from God. And this will stretch us in ways and directions that we never expected. Amen? <clears throat> Paul considers division in the community of Christ an attack on a, a desecration of the temple itself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul rebukes the Corinthians. You're probably familiar with this verse if you've studied Corinthians at all. He talks about how that they, that they are carnal and they're not spiritual. Why? Because there's divisions among them. And he rebukes them for their quarreling and their one-upsmanship, citing as proof, citing this, this division and this quarreling as, as proof of their worldliness. And what follows is intriguing. First, following that, he describes the people that they so proudly profess allegiance to as just workmen in God's field. In other words, why are you making such a big deal out of who you follow versus who they follow? They're just workmen in God's field. They're just, they're just sharecroppers. I mean, they're just out there working the fields. Why, why, why are they such a big deal to you? Then he, he talks about God's building, its foundation, and that everyone must be careful how they build this building of God. Sound familiar? This building, this spiritual house, this temple that God is building together. And then listen to how he closes the, his argument in, in verse, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Wow. Wow. Division in the church is evil because it destroys God's temple, which is us. When... when <clears throat> When the temple was destroyed, the, like the Babylonians, they come to Jerusalem, they ransack and destroy the temple and carry the, the, the uh, uh, Jews into captivity. That was an apocalyptic time. In other words, that was a the world is never going to be the same again kind of time. Everything has been turned upside down, topsy-turvy. And Paul describes... Those kinds of events, that kind of an event as what happens when there's division in the church. He takes it seriously. Amen? <clears throat> now, someone might say, are, are, are you preaching this because there's like some problems in the church? You know, maybe you come from a church where that's how, what the preachers do. They, 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 whatever's going on and bothering them in their, you know, this week in their inbox, that's what they preach about on the next Sunday. That's not what we do around here, okay? So... <clears throat> no. <laughs> but 
But the opposite of division is not just the lack of fighting. See, we, we may have a lack of fighting, but that isn't unity. The lack of fighting doesn't mean we've arrived because, oh, yeah, we don't have division. Look, we're not fighting. That's not what, what is at issue here. Unity is not merely the absence of division. It's the adjoining together of our lives. So the opposite of division is the joining together of our lives. And I think we could always grow and be strengthened in that. And I think all the more we need to grow and be strengthened in that. Amen? A joining together of our lives. How are we joined together in our lives? Well, think of this. Joined together in prayer, worship, <clears throat> studying scripture. Colossians 3.16, for instance. Joined together in service with each other and for each other. With each other and for each other. Joined together in service with each other and for each other. Galatians 5.13. Joined together in our substance, our means. It is give us today our daily bread, not give me today my daily bread. We Even in our praying, we have to go to thinking about how Others need daily bread, too, that are in our midst. We pray for each other when we pray, Our Father, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. It's not just forgive me my sins. You know, oh, Lord, forgive me. I've been such a sinner. No. Lord, forgive us. Forgive my brother who's been struggling this week, who's, who's failed. Forgive the brother who I have ought against because... He sinned against me, but forgive us our sins. Forgive him. And yeah, by the way, forgive me as I forgive those who sin against me. <laughs> oh, there's that too. Yeah. Lead us not into temptation. It's not just, oh, Lord, help me walk righteously today. It's, it's my brother Dave. It's, it's my sister Karen. It's my brother Andy. My sister Ann. It's help us, Lord. To walk in your way. <clears throat> Joined in such a way that the one who gathered much does not have too much. Or the one who gathers little does not have too little. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Joined as we bear one another's weaknesses. Forbearing and forgiving their offenses. Not only are we being built into a spiritual house. We are a particular people. <clears throat> we are a particular people. Um, read with me in verse 9 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 and 10 but you are a chosen people you could read that a chosen race interesting spin that that puts on it and it would be accurate as well a royal priesthood a holy nation God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, what does it mean to be a chosen or elect people? In, in verse 4, Peter had described Jesus as the living stone, chosen and precious to God. In verse 6, we didn't read yet, but he, he bases the language of verse 4 on this language from Isaiah 28. See, I lay in a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, he says that we too are chosen, a chosen people, a chosen race, a chosen national or ethnic identity. See, we're so big in our country today of, of 
grouping ourselves by our ethnic or national identity, former national identity. You know, you've got your Italian-Americans, your African-Americans, your Irish-Americans. Everything's something, something American. But, but Peter is saying we are the chosen people, the, the chosen ones of their own identity. We belong to this identity. This is what defines us more than anything else now because we've been born again. Amen? <clears throat> It's the same language that, that Peter's using here that, that God used of Israel to say that they were the nation, the people out of all the earth that he chose in order to bless the world through them. The same exact language. Now God, God is saying through Peter, you, those who trust in Jesus, the chosen precious cornerstone, will not be ashamed. You are that chosen people, the that chosen race out of all the earth through whom I will reach the world. The language of verse 9 in 1 Peter 2 comes right from Exodus 19, verse 5. There, speaking to Israel, just after they've come out of uh, Israel, the people of God there just coming out of Israel and arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, we read the following beginning in verse 4 in Exodus 19. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests, holy nation. Israel did not fully obey God. Now, but if you obey me fully. Well, they did not. They said they would. They didn't. They, in fact, it didn't take but a few days, and they were radically disobeying God, such that the stones were broken and ground to powder and dust, and they're made to drink it. But now... Peter says, it's the one who trusts in him, Jesus, that will never be put to shame. That one becomes part of this chosen people, this kingdom of priests, this holy nation. That one. Sometimes people will ask me, do you believe in replacement theology? Sounds so negative, doesn't it? Kind of belittling. You know, well, I don't, I don't know, as if, are, are you saying that do I believe that the sacrifice of Jesus replaces the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant? Yes. I believe that. Do I, do I believe that the law of Christ replaces the Mosaic law for what we live by? Absolutely. I believe that. But, but what they really mean is not that. They, what they mean is, do you believe that the church replaces Israel? Oh, no, I don't believe that. I don't believe that the church, this other thing takes the place of Israel. No, no, I don't believe that at all. I think the church is Israel. In fact, the pages of the New Testament, you can't hardly find a page that that's not on it. It would be hard to understand anything in the New Testament apart from that. Have to toss the entire book of Acts. Never mind Ephesians, Romans. I mean, you know, we, we could go on and on. No, I don't believe it replaces Israel. It is. God's not changed. 
who the people of God are. He's just radically changed how one becomes a part of it. The, <clears throat> the spiritual community, this spiritual community that we call the church, is Israel. Not in the land, but in the spirit. Not in the land, but in the spirit. <clears throat> We're no longer defined by geographical boundaries of land or ethnic boundaries of food or circumcision, but by the presence of the spirit who dwells in us together. But, but just as being chosen, being a priesthood for the king's service, and being a holy nation meant that Israel under the old covenant was to live differently than the other nations, to live as separated unto God, so we also are called to live separated unto God. Not under the Mosaic law, but under the law of Christ. A, a holy nation means that we are dedicated to the Lord, set apart for him. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. So that just as Hannah dedicated Samuel to the Lord, and it meant, therefore, that he would go live at the house of the Lord in Shiloh, not just do whatever he pleased, so too we are a holy nation. We now live at the house of the Lord, or better yet, as the house of the Lord, and no longer live unto ourselves. Amen? A royal priesthood means that we were chosen for the purpose of mediation, for the purpose of standing between God and the world, to bring his message to the world and to bring their need to God. That's what a priesthood does. God calls us in order to transform us so that as a transformed people, we can mediate his message to the world. Let me give you an example, just as one example of what this means. Just one simple example. We are now a people with a different worldview. When he saves us, he gives us a different worldview. <clears throat> the, the first thing God tells his chosen people in, in the written revelation of Scripture, which every generation of his people would receive, it's, it's a worldview changer, That what he tells us. It's, it's a worldview-altering account. Genesis 1 and 2. God is the creator and ruler of all. In six days, God made the world, and on the seventh, he rested. He blessed that day, and he set that day apart. And, you know, sadly, what we get so focused on is how many hours were in that day. That becomes the most important thing we think about in that chapter. Oh, how many hours were in that day? I don't think a single Jew ever asked that question that was wandering around the wilderness to whom that book was written. I don't think Moses thought the thought when he wrote it. God set a day apart. That corresponds to our seventh day of the week at that time, as it were. <clears throat> now, as we learned in our study of Genesis last year and, and, and then the year before we were in it some beginning that's when we were in this first part in the ancient world God resting meant that God made the world and Eden as a temple a dwelling place of God with man that, that idea wherever God rested wherever any God rested that was their temple okay and so God resting on the seventh day meant that he had created everything in six days and now it was ready for God to dwell with man a temple 
And he came and dwelt with man, a temple. And therefore, that day is set apart. Why? Because God dwells with man. That day represents God's relationship to man. So we find later in the story, as we get into Exodus and then Deuteronomy, that that the, the blessing of that day, setting that day apart, it means something. It means that God's people acknowledge his creation of the world every week by setting apart uh, a, a day of rest and refreshing in our worship of God. It is a God-centered day that demonstrates that, that God is the center of every day. And secondly, we, 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 it means that we rest because God has set us free. He, he did not make us to be slaves to work, slaves to greed, slaves to always needing more. He didn't make us to be that. He made us human. And part of what it means to be human is, is that life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. And so we take a day to be human again and remember That it isn't all about how much I can get. I don't work six days because I'm trying to amass the most. I work six days to honor God, and I take this day to honor Him above all, and that work doesn't matter today. It ceases. It means that we no longer view others for what they can produce, viewing them mechanistically. We must allow our our workers a day of rest. We must allow... Even our animals, a day of rest. Now, I'm not talking about pets. They rest every day. Pets are ridiculous. I'm talking about work animals, you know, ox and and things that actually produced something. They had to be allowed to rest. No one or nothing in God's creation can simply become an object or means of our satiation. All were made for God's temple. And all were made to rest and rejoice in him. Sadly, modern day Christians have all too often turned this concept of biblical stopping and recentering on God into a, a day off. What Eugene Peterson calls a bastardized Sabbath. I didn't say that, he did. And he translated the whole Bible, so, you know. We make it about more production. You'll even hear Christians say things like, well, if we stop and take a day off every week like God tells us, well, we'll be more productive on the other six. As if the whole point is more production. That isn't why we take a day off. So what that we may or may not be more productive on the other six? That isn't the point. And when we make that the point, we miss it entirely. If that's why we're stopping, we shouldn't. Well, we should, but we should change why. We are a people because God has chosen us who no longer live to produce the most we can possibly produce and we no longer view others as a means to producing the most that they can possibly produce for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 puts it a little differently. For, God, for, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. We no longer live for ourselves. 
but for him who died for us and was raised again. It transforms how we live. That's just an example. (coughs) Every ethical command in the New Testament ought to be heard or read with the placard over it, don't try this on your own. Don't try this on your own. In other words, these commands were never intended to be fulfilled apart from this community, this spiritual community that we are joined to. Now, I've often talked about the fact that we cannot fulfill the one another commands of the, of the Scripture apart from being in close relationship with the body of Christ. But the fact is, we can't fulfill any of the commands, not just the one another commands, apart from being joined to the body of Christ. We were never intended to fulfill any of the commands of the New Testament apart from one another. William Willimon writes the following. He says, do not try to be extraordinarily faithful apart from a community that is extraordinarily forgiving. Violence, servility to the powers, and deceit come quite naturally to us. The lone individual attempting to stand alone is no match for the subtle and persistent pressures of the empire, meaning this dark world around us, the empire of darkness, kingdom of darkness. Do not attempt to protect the life of the unborn apart from a community that assumes responsibility for those who are ill-equipped to have children in isolation and loneliness. It is the church that makes Christian ethics make sense. It is the church that makes Christian ethics make sense. God chose us, set us apart for his own purposes, that we might be a united priesthood in his service to reach the world. But in order to do so, we must live as foreigners and exiles. <coughs> Let's read in, in verse 11 and 12 of our text, our, our beginning text, First Peter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, fleshly desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Foreigners and exiles are those whose home is elsewhere. Exiles live longing for their homeland, not for the pleasures of the place they are in. They long for the place they're from, not for the place they are in at the moment. Therefore, they abstain from desires belonging to the flesh, this world. Those desires war against our souls. We, we long for the desires of the Spirit. The land we live in is the Spirit. That's how we're joined together to be God's people. <clears throat> they, 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 they war, those desires of the flesh war against our souls, not just when we're resisting them, but they're warring against our souls when we are following them. Even when we're, the, when we're following them, they're winning the war. We might not think of them as warring against our flesh because we're just giving in to them, but they're winning. We're losing. On the other hand, we are called to live in such a way that we stand out among unbelievers for good. They may want to accuse us, but on the day of God's visitation, they will glorify God because of our lives, which maybe that indicates that some of them get saved and therefore they glorify God because of our lives. I, I don't know. That's an interesting statement that they glorify God on the day he visits us. 
your deeds, your life, your actions, good and bad, affect our witness. Affect my witness. My, my deeds and actions affect your witness in the community. And the reason there's high standards for those who are going to be in, in ministry as, as elders in the church, even deacons in the church, why there are standards is because for those that have a public position, there's even a greater effect on the testimony of the whole. <clears throat> See, it's not just your testimony before the world, it's our testimony before the world. We are to model the gospel in our lives together. If only some of us live as those who belong to another place, whose hope is not in this life, nor, nor its passing world, this passing world's reward, as those who don't treat people as objects or means by which we can obtain more stuff and satiation, then those who, who, who don't, at best, water down the witness of the church, or at worst, ruin it altogether. And this is why church discipline is so necessary, because the actions of one can affect the testimony of all. And so there comes a place, sadly, where you have to say, you are no longer part of this community. <clears throat> Richard Hayes, <clears throat> he writes the following, I think accurately. <laughs> he says, that the most powerful argument for the truth of Scripture is a community of people who exemplify the love and power of the, of the God that they have come to know through the New Testament. The most powerful argument for the truth of Scripture is a community of people who exemplify the love and power of the God that they have come to know through the New Testament. Uh, apart from the witness of such communities, formal arguments for the authority of Scripture carry little weight. He's not saying there's no value in those formal arguments for the authority of Scripture. He's simply saying that unless those are backed by a community that lives out what the New Testament calls us to, there's no power behind them. That, that, there's, there's no power to convince anybody. <clears throat> Apart from the witness of such communities, formal arguments for the authority of Scripture carry little weight. The converse of what Hayes says is also true. The weakest argument for the truth of Scripture is a community of people claiming to believe but who live lives for themselves alone. Oh yeah, we believe the Bible. This is God's word. It's authoritative, but it changes our lives, not one iota. We still live as everyone else does for ourselves and ourselves alone. Why would anybody want to believe this if we don't by our lives? We can go around decrying all we want. Why It's just such a sad world we live in. People have stopped believing in the authority of the Bible as if we haven't. I say we meaning the church at large. If you, if you judge it by how we live our lives, I wonder what we believe. He's called us to something else. <clears throat> it's, it's not uncommon to hear believers pitting community against evangelism. You know, well, you don't want to become too inward focused. I mean, you know that, all that focus on community. You know, we need to be an outward people. That's a false dichotomy. It's just a false dichotomy. Evangelism must grow out of spiritual community. Or it's very empty. It's very empty. Well, just a few thoughts in, in closing that <coughs> kind of make some 
additional applications to what we've talked about. Our gathering together for worship each Sunday is significant. It's significant. It isn't just something we do because we're Christians. It is about who we are. It's about who we are. This is an expression, this, this right here, this gathering is an expression of who we are. We are one. We gather to worship as one, to sing the same songs, to make the same profession of faith in those songs, to amen the same prayers, to eat the same meal of the word and at the same family table. We gather each week because of who we are. And this expresses who we are. And it isn't just to express it to everyone else. No, frankly, I need this expression to keep myself from thinking that I live alone in this world. We need this. Because it represents who we are and everything else screams against who we are. It goes beyond this meeting. Because of who we are, we also share life together. The good, the bad, the difficult, the joyous, births, deaths, burdens, and abundance. It's shared life. It's not just this. This would be hollow if we didn't follow that with a shared life. <clears throat> we have a shared heritage in Jesus. We are a chosen people, not just different peoples coming together. We are a people. We belong to the same people group in Jesus, the people of God, <coughs> the chosen people of God. This unity that we are called to have is also something on a, a, a broader scale we have with the entire body of Christ. So, so, so it's not just that we are joined, but we need to remember that every local body, that they're joined to each other, but we're all joined to be one temple in the Lord. It's not as if ultimately he has thousands of temples. No, he has one temple that has expressions in all these local places. We can't forget that though we may have some beliefs we cherish that other communities don't, we are still one in Christ. And so we need to cherish what we do hold together enough that we cherish them in Christ. <clears throat> maybe, maybe you've still been living the lie that, that freedom means that you're an unattached person who is subject to no one and master of all. Maybe that's your life. You're here this morning, and this is all radically new to you. Maybe you've, you've felt the effect of that, and you feel as if you belong to no one or nothing, because that ultimately is the effect. We feel like we are isolated and alone in the world. <clears throat> Christ Jesus calls you to come to him, and by coming to him, coming to be a part of his new community. I urge us all to embrace Christ and the fact that in him we are joined together and therefore belong to one another. To recognize that we are spiritually, a spiritually united community. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've, we've, we've dug deep into this truth of who we are as a as a community, a spiritual community. 
we've, we've, we've explored the depths of it to some degree, Lord, and we've made some application. But, Lord, the application goes beyond what do I do when I leave here. The application is about who we are. And, Lord, ultimately only you can open our eyes to fully see who we are, who you've made us to be. Use these truths, these scriptures, these thoughts, Lord, such that as we reflect on them, that they begin to transform our thinking about who we are, who my brother and sister in Christ is. And in transforming our thinking, then transforming our living and how we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.